You know, for a long time, I meant to try Pete's coffee, but just never gave it a chance. But ever since I did, I have a hard time settling on anything less. And there's something to say about a coffee company with such rich history and devotion to bring you that perfect brew. Since Alfred Pete opened his first coffee bar in 1966, Pete's has selectively sourced the finest beans in the world, carefully calibrating each roast by hand and crafting each beverage with the utmost care. Pete's aims to produce fresh from the roaster's coffee delivered directly to your door, sourcing the top 1% of coffee beans, roasted by hand to unlock each bean's potential, and delivering it to you fresh to bring you the perfect cup. With over 30 flavor varieties in both gourmet coffees and teas, like Vietnam Lotus Bold, Major Dickinson's Blend, and Arabian Mocha Java, you are sure to find the right flavor to start your day. And they even come in K-Cups for those of you who live life on the go. Check out all the varieties of Pete's has to offer by following the link in the show notes below. And starting August 30th, you can take advantage of their Labor Day sale and get yourself 20% off anything on their site by using promo code LABORDAY20 at checkout. This offer is valid through September 5th. That's promo code LABORDAY20 at checkout for 20% off your purchase this Labor Day. But why not do one better? Use promo code NEWSUB30 at checkout and you get yourself 30% off of a new subscription to Pete's Coffee. That's right. All the delicious coffee you could want delivered right to your door each and every month without you ever having to worry about running low. What more could you ever need? That's promo code NEWSUB30 for 30% off your subscription. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to Grindhouse, where we drink coffee and talk about movies. My name is Leah Diana, and today with my boyfriend and co-host, Sean Tatro, we will be winding back the reels to 1987. Sex deviant Frank inadvertently opens a portal to hell when he tinkers with a box he bought while abroad. The act unleashes gruesome beings called Cenobites who tear Frank's body apart. When Frank's brother and his wife, Julia, move into Frank's old house, they accidentally bring what is left of Frank back to life. Frank then convinces Julia, his one-time lover, to lure men back to the house so he can use their blood to reconstruct himself in Hellraiser. Let's get into it. I have seen the future of horror. His name is Clive Barker. Oh. 
holy is unleashed. You dirty cocksuckers. Tell all your grave robbing friends I want them out of the city now! The nightmare of insane murder. From the depths of I'm so happy we watched this. I'm so happy. I love how gruesome and disgusting this movie is. It amazes me that you enjoy this oh one God, so much. Oh my God, I enjoy this one. And I feared for years, years, that this would be the one that I would never watch. I vowed never to watch it, ever. And then you were like, let's watch Hellraiser. And how nervous was I to watch this movie? You were pretty damn nervous. I was. I was very nervous to watch this movie the first time. And then I watched it and I was like, well, that's so bad. That's actually kind of nice. I am genuinely surprised that this one does not bother me because it is gory. It is disgusting. There's just sex and violence. This should have what instilled satanic panic, not D&D in the 80s. Just saying. Well, to be fair, this was 87, so. Still the 80s. It's late into the 80s. It doesn't matter. How old were you when this movie came out, Sean? <laughs> Me? Yeah. I was not yet born. I was two. <laughs> <laughs> I was a little old bitty two-year-old baby. I was not yet born. Nope, this you was, were you were not a thought yet. So it's two years my senior. Wow. <laughs> this is not one this is not my favorite horror movie, but this is probably in my top ten. I was so excited I could do this one. This one's it's definitely a classic. Yes. And to, you know, re rephrase, repreface, this week we watched Clive Barker's Hellraiser. Yep. Now this was Clive, Bar Clive Barker's debut film into filmmaking. Yep. Like, he directed, wrote and directed this movie based off of a story, a novella, I guess, that he yeah. wrote called The Hellbound Heart. Now, this movie drastically differs in a lot of ways to the story. I read a little bit of the synopsis of the book, and it's very different. Very different, but it, in a good way. I like that he made the movie different. Yeah. Not the same thing. This one stars Andrew Robinson, Claire Higgins, and Ashley Lawrence. It was originally released September 10th, 1987. Made on a budget of $1 million, brought in a box office return of $14.6 Ooh, so this was a commercial success. It was. Holy shit. By a pretty wide margin. And I was very shocked to know, and I read this a couple of days ago, that the Hellraiser character, Pinhead, is renowned as one of the most terrifying characters with less than 10 minutes total of screen time. 
in this first film. In yeah. this first film, he has less. He is just shy of ten minutes of screen time. And that shows you how powerful Doug Bradley's performance is. Because when you are in that hospital scene, and those bricks light up white and the black, and you hear that what significantly sounds like the fucking clock in Stranger Things now, that's another thing we've got to get into. We both felt very stupid at the beginning of this movie, just to, you know, reiterate. But when you hear that, and you see it, and, and you see Pinhead come out, I just went, this is the greatest villain entrance. Fuck Darth Vader. Fuck Freddy Krueger. This is it. To be fair, Darth Vader's entrance in the first movie is not very great. <laughs> yeah, but back in the 70s, that was terrifying. Uh, hey, you didn't live in the 70s. I you don't didn't. know. <laughs> but, I mean, I, watching this back, there were a couple of moments where I'm like, oh, I remember this. So I don't, I'm not really like wholeheartedly paying attention because I've seen this a couple of times now. I've put it on in the background once or twice. But that scene has me perk up, staring, going, Doug Bradley, Doug Bradley. <laughs> like, I get so excited seeing that scene. But I will say this movie has been ruined for me now that I've been with you for like almost five years. We watch movies, we watch this stuff. I learn about behind the scenes stuff. I learn camera tricks and I can see all of the effects. They're all pretty much all practical. Like I would say 98% of this movie is practical. They're definitely all practical. Yeah, there are, there's a couple, there's a couple of green screen moments that definitely needed to be for that puppet monster thing. There was a little bit of green screen. Mm. Just like a very small amount when it's full bodied and they have to like, it's the running scene. You can tell it's a human on top and it's a puppet on the bottom and they're on a rig. But there's one scene where it just moves funny. I don't know if it's 100% green screen. It, maybe it's just my mind. But just watching that, I'm like, oh my God, I know how they do this now. God damn it. I was so intrigued when we first watched it four years ago. I was like, this is so cool. Now I'm like, oh, I know exactly how they do that. It's so cool, but it's like, damn, it loses magic. Welcome to my brain. Oh my God. <laughs> All I, the pretty things are ruined I for can me. I always tell how things are done because I've seen how things are done created especially with certain movies like i actually have watched how they made certain things mm. so it's the illusion is gone but i still enjoy it and you've worked on two actual major productions yes like i wouldn't say they're like major major but they were major release major productions yeah so you've seen the actual physical behind the scenes of what it takes to set up prep do that one shot and then if they don't like it you got to set up and prep all that again i mean you think to yourself, well, how can a movie take three or four months to film constantly? Holy shit. And now you have these big blockbuster things like all the Marvel stuff. You know, the TV right now is showing Obi-Wan Kenobi. Like, God only knows how much time and effort is put into these versus Hellraiser, which we just watched. Well, something like Hellraiser, it's very effects heavy. Yeah. So a lot of the time is going to go into creating and executing those effects and a lot of those effects have to be done in pieces mm -hmm. and then stitched together in editing to really sell the whole not to mention the amount of time makeup prosthetics all of that stuff between frank the cenobites i mean holy crap the amount of fake blood they must have used on this shoot it had to have been a lot my god a metric fuck ton <laughs> 
Shoot, hit me with some facts. Shoot me with some facts. Some Am I all facts? Right? You want facts Let's right in here right facts. now? I was not prepared. So here's a fun fact. Hmm. When Clark Barker first showed this film to his mother, oh, shit. she cried tears of joy upon seeing her son's name in the opening credits. He then leaned over to her and whispered that that would be the happiest she would be for the next two hours. <laughs> I love this bastard. <laughs> let's, uh, yeah, let's talk a little bit about Clive Barker. I don't know much about this man, but I love his twisted fucking sense. I love it. So, Clive Barker, he, like, many people are gonna probably know that he started out as a novelist. Mm-hmm. He, he wrote stories, short stories, he wrote books, he, tons of different shit. He has a tendency to write in a very Lovecraftian style. Mm-hmm. So, like, things often are otherworldly and or they're beyond human very comprehension. Cosmic. Yeah, it's a very cosmic horror style. Mm-hmm. He also has a flair for blending horror with sexuality. I find that intriguing. I really do. I think it's kind of amazing. I've always been very intrigued by BDSM. I like the concept of sadomasochism. I hope I'm saying that right. It's just fascinating, like, psychologically to me. I don't know why, it just always has been. So watching this movie is like, oh, it kind of unlocks that whole like, huh, I want to know more about this. And I never, ever knew this man was an author until I started getting into horror books. And I didn't get into them till like recently. And you were like, oh, he's an author. He was an author prior. And I'm very intrigued to read his stuff, but I'm also low-key scared because I've read a couple of horror books and I'm like, oh, okay, that was good. Oh, okay, that was awesome. Oh, I like that one. Nothing scares me. I feel like this man's stories will truly terrify me. I mean, I don't know about that. Have You've read the Telltale, uh, the Telltale Heart. Uh, no, nope, that's Poe. Heart. The Hellbound Heart. What did yes. you think of it when you read it? I, I don't know. I didn't think too much of it. Like, I thought it was good, but it's not what I expected having come from like I saw Hellraiser before I ever yeah knew there was a book so I don't know I, I think I expected it to be so much more than the movie gave me and it's not really it's about on the same level it's just things happen differently mm. characters are different now with that being said do you think the series that's coming out where they go really strictly by the book, do you think it's going to be more terrifying when it comes out later this year? Uh, possibly. It really depends. Like, they're doing it direct to Hulu, I believe. Yeah, it's a Hulu thing. So it really depends on how much leeway they were given to, like, really go into the nitty-gritty. I think Clive Barker is involved. Well, I'm not talking about from him. I'm talking about from the studio itself. From the actors, from the studio. Like, how how deep are you going to allow this story to go? Because reading the synopsis of the book, this, like, that first scene where you see Frank get strung up and you see all that, that scene in the book is detailed. Yeah, it's pretty vicious. <laughs> how old were you when you read the book? I, uh, I read it while we were working at Tier 1. Oh, did you? Yeah. Oh, my God. Because that was the first time I had, like, it was around that time that I found a physical copy. And How did like, you read that book and work there at the same time? Like, I feel like that's too... I didn't read it there. 
Oh no, I'm saying like I would have been so depressed reading about hell and then going back to hell. Oh. <laughs> um, I am not sorry for anybody that knows knows us and knows that place. Not sorry at all. I ain't taking it back. So should we do a play-by-play on this one? Because you know this one pretty well. Yeah, I mean, we can start going through it. I, instead of play-by-playing it, I when something intrigued me or I had questions about something, I bullet-pointed it. Um, I didn't strictly do a play-by-play. I just kind of took notes on various things. But yeah, this movie opens with Frank purchasing the box from like a strange... It says Morocco. From a strange vendor in Morocco. Strange vendor in Morocco, but it's very clear it's like an Asian guy. Yeah. Who actually tells him that the box was always his, which adds a whole air of mystery in and of itself. Yeah. The next thing we see, he's in a dark room surrounded by candles, and he's opening the puzzle box and being consumed by chains. Consumed by chains. And then the next thing you see are these, like, obelisk-type things being spun around on chains with parts of Frank's flesh and body and viscera just just pinned to it. And thinking in the 80s, that was probably so gruesome and gory, but now I'm like, this is all fake prosthetics and that's really fake red paint. And <laughs> <laughs> that's just out of the 55-gallon drum of lube. Like, <laughs> But it's a really graphic scene to see that. Right at the beginning. Right at the beginning. Like they there is no there is no warning. This just goes right. You get smacked in the face right with this scene. And another surprising thing is that in this moment we immediately see Pinhead and the Cenobites. Yep. They don't shy away from them at all. It's like, oh no, we're not going to wait and give you time to kind of adapt and have happiness. We're bringing this to you, telling you this is not a fun movie. This is supposed to be terrifying and you're supposed to hate every second of it. And I love that. I love that this doesn't apologize that it's, this isn't a, this isn't a good movie. Have fun. <laughs> we then skip some time mm-hmm. um, and I forget his name every time. Larry. 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 And How do you, do you forget Larry? I don't know. <laughs> every time, because I think because Frank is so prominent that I always that name comes to mind mm. first. But Larry and Julia arrive at the house, and they are essentially coming to take possession of the house. The house in question is Larry and Frank's mother's, mother's old, house. old house. Yeah. She passed away. Frank didn't want him to sell it. So, and Frank has since vanished. Mm -hmm. So Larry and Julia are coming to kind of take possession. They're going to move in, fix the place up. That's the idea. Now, the scene where we see Julia and Larry go in the house and we see the windows and the front door. I look at you and go, do you see the stained glass on the windows and the front door? And I quite literally nearly shit. Because I did not realize it sooner. So after that, while we were watching the movie, I was researching and the Duffer Brothers for Stranger Things 4. This is spoiler alert for Stranger Things. If you don't want to know, it's been out long enough. If you haven't seen it by this point, you're... We did our best to go into Stranger Things 4 without spoilers. Sean did really well. I fucking failed. I knew almost everything Um, (laughs) before we saw the last episode. But the Duffer Brothers were very influenced by Freddy Krueger, Pennywise... And Pinhead. And if you look at it, the scene where Vecna's being pulled up by the hive mind tentacles 
looks very much like Frank being strung up on the chains. The way Frank is all viscera and gross looks exactly like Vecna. And the front door to Vecna's house or the mansion looks almost, almost identical to the front door and the windows of Larry and Frank's house. And I just remember looking at him going, dude, dude, look at the windows. And he's like, oh, I didn't realize we should have realized it because this is one of our top movies. I didn't even think of it. And I'm sitting here going, oh, fuck. <laughs> like, it would have been <laughs> so much cooler in the moment watching the show. But uh, I, I love the fact that the Duffer brothers have given us a new kind of horror. Yeah. while still keeping the same horror elements from our childhoods, basically. Yeah. Well, your childhood, my adulthood, because, you know, you were a weird child that watched this shit. Yeah, almost exclusively. Oh, <laughs> God. Very soon after they basically start moving into the house, uh, we get a phone call the ho- uh, at the house from... Kirsten, mm-hmm. our Kirsten or Kristen? Kirsty. 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 That's it. This is essentially going to be our protagonist of yep. the movie. This is Larry's daughter. And every time I see this woman, I think of Nancy Thompson from Nightmare on Elm Street. Every time. Okay. Yeah. They are very similar characters in a lot of ways. I mean, Nancy's a little bit more homely, but. No, but I also feel like Kirsty is maybe a little bit of an homage to Nancy because she's got the very, like, quiet, mousy features. She has the curly brown hair. She dresses very conservatively. Like, she's a very, like, all-American 80s girl at that point. Yeah. Um, And I would see that. I also see um, Nancy from Stranger Things, too. Mm. Like, well, Nancy I, from Stranger she's Things. She's kind of a is, mishmash yeah. of all of them, but I really did see it in this where she goes from Nancy Thompson and turns into Kirsty. <laughs> like yeah. she be, she goes from the nice quiet girl who, you know, does what she needs to to the fucking badass sod <laughs> shotgun wheeling bitch that she is. Holy fuck. I mean, she's turning into fucking Sarah Connor at this at point. At this point? <laughs> that girl doesn't have a normal life ahead of her. No. But yeah, I I I enjoy the fact that Kirsty didn't completely crack. A lot of the other characters in horror movies that go through shit like this crack. She didn't. She stood her ground. She was very much like even to the end, like she acted like she was a damsel in distress till the moment that she had to. And then she was like, nope, fuck you, go to hell. Done. Yeah. I appreciate how strong this character, this female character is very much. We're also quickly introduced to this backstory of a torrid love affair between Julia and Frank. Like right before the wedding? Right before the wedding. Right before she married Larry. Yeah. Yep. Yikes. And it's quite graphic. It paints her in the worst light possible. You immediately lose all sympathy for this character and start to see how quickly she descends into the darkest depths of depravity. And, like, I will say this actress is amazing because from the moment she gets on screen, you don't know what's happening, but you automatically are like, "Mm, I don't really like her. Then she has a very posh British accent, and I'm like, still don't like her. But in the flashback from where she meets Frank, 
she seems warm and happy and inviting and I liked her there. And props to this actress because she really was able to convey the innocence there and just how much of a nasty person she becomes. Yeah, you can see how much Frank's introduction twisted her. Yeah, just ru- absolutely ruined her. God, I hate Frank. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody hates Frank. Everybody hates Frank. I have to mention that the film's score is extremely powerful and almost operatic. Yeah, I mean, I don't really pay attention to the score as much as you, you do. should. So good, Leah. Look, once you appreciate and watch Lord of the Rings multiple times with me and appreciate that score, then I'll appreciate these other scores. Here we go again. It'll never stop. Never gonna stop me. Never gonna stop. So during this, uh, Julia reminiscing about the past, we have... Larry's helping the movers move a mattress upstairs. Mm -hmm. Accidentally cuts his hand on a nail that's sticking out. And he's bleeding all over the place. And he goes to find Julia because he's squeamish when it comes to blood. Mm -hmm. And he's like all woozy. And the second he enters this room, being where Frank died, not that they know that. Yep. His blood falls onto the floor. And mixes with, in what Wikipedia quotes, his blood, his viscera, and his semen. Which brings Frank back from whatever hell pleasure dimension he's been. Yes. And I was just, that little description makes you go, (laughs) Now, this is one of the best scenes in the fucking movie. This is disgusting, and I love it. You're essentially treated to Frank's rebirth, which we watch the blood get absorbed into the wood. And then these two nubs just boom. And they create this effect with combinations of puppetry, reverse cinematography, which it seems like they, they built it props like and then melted them. And then melted it or put or acid on it. And reverse the footage and oh, made it look like it's coming back together. It is God. really fucking cool. If you are squeamish, like really, if you don't like blood, if you don't like guts, as much as I would love people to watch this, don't watch this movie. <laughs> or if you watch it, put a bucket next to you. I know plenty of my friends and family that are extremely squeamish, my mother included, and she listens to this podcast. Mom, don't watch this. <laughs> don't watch this one. You'll hate it. Now, I'm going to sidetrack a bit here, and I, I want to talk about Frank. Because yeah. these, the effects that they created for this movie at the time were like groundbreaking. They essentially, they did his makeup in stages. And you have these various levels of him regenerating throughout the movie. They were somehow, at this time when effects weren't quite there yet, able to make it so you could have a live actor there, but still seem like they had removed his skin. Mm. And you're essentially, he's walking around as this like just muscle and yeah he goes tissue. muscle and then nerve ending he, no he's nerve endings and then muscle and then it's like the outer epidermis but no skin and then it's like blood bleeding because all of the veins are or yeah. the blood um yeah the veins are all right there and it's just he's permanently bleeding for like days god it was so oh, cool that actor must have hated being just wet in viscera the whole time well it's interesting because you think about like you hear all the time these days like how long people are in makeup for certain characters Mm. like uh, i think 
when we watched Stranger Things, they said like the ki- the guy who played Vecna was in the makeup chair for like six hours. Or six to like eight that. hours. He would have a call time at like one, two in the morning. And then everybody else's call time would be like eight, nine, ten AM because they needed time to get Jamie Bowen Campbell or Jamie Campbell Bowen. I'm yeah. not sure what his name is. I could look it up, but um, getting him into that Vecna makeup took six to eight hours. And it wasn't just CGI. They practical that whole fucking thing. So the actors had something to bounce off of. Well, and you think about this was in 87. It must have taken much longer. It must have been a call time of like eight or 9 p.m. the day before just to be able to do the stages of the makeup. Like, and there's prosthetics to where his nose is hidden and his cheeks are like bleeding and his hands are not complete. And the clothes that he's wearing, it looks like they physically did all of it underneath the chest and then some of the legs, just so you had the effect of he was just slimy and gross. It's yeah. so cool. It, it goes without saying that the, the effects throughout this entire movie are some of the most impressive in horror. Oh my God. It honestly, Freddy Krueger's makeup is impressive. The makeup for, do not tell me his name. Robert Angle. Anglin. Robert Anglin. Robert Angle. No, that's the, nope. here's your side, dude, isn't it? Um, Robert Anglin. He is, I mean, I've seen a lot of his stuff. He's in Stranger Things too. And boy, oh boy, I love his character. <laughs> He's so cool. But um, he was in makeup for hours upon hours. Yeah. And he had all the texture and all that shit that he had to wear, too. I mean, the villains, the horror villains of the 80s, they had to go through some shit, man. Like, villains nowadays, eh, I can't think of a villain right now that is a practical villain lately. Most of them have some form of CGI. I think, I haven't seen the movie yet, but I think uh, Christian Bale in... The new Thor is mostly practical. I heard it was mostly practical. He lost a shit ton of weight again. He looks like a fucking skeleton. He always does. And he's getting an Oscar nod for it? That's crazy to think about. That is insane. I mean, I have no idea if he would even get it or if... I mean, they don't really nominate Marvel movies, but... I mean, look at all the recognition that Stranger Things is getting. True. And it's a Netflix show, I mean. The next, like, section of this movie essentially follows like Julia discovering Frank and then agreeing to help him regenerate help him become a man again which essentially consists of her going out luring men seducing men and bringing them back and killing them and then Frank can absorb them which is pretty fucked up (laughs) Um, yeah but it's throughout this that series of events that you're you're seeing Julia slip deeper and deeper and like getting further and further past the point of return. Yeah. Like she can't she's becoming a monster. Which is interesting when you think about it. It's like she's almost more of a monster than Frank is. Yeah, like Frank was just looking to go beyond the realm of pleasure. Julia is a sick, twisted individual who murdered five men, including her own husband. Just so her lover can come back. She did say she would do anything for him. I mean, (laughs) there's a difference between, honey, I'll do anything for you. And I will, I will literally murder for you. There are 
is a difference. <laughs> and it is tone and it is conviction. I adore you. I'm not killing anybody for it. You know, there's there's something I noticed throughout this one this viewing of it, which is that Clive Barker lingers on awkwardness in so many moments. Okay. Like, he emph- to me, he emphasized the pain that's lingering, mm. which I noticed it early in this this viewing. So uh, it kind of was almost, in a way, introducing us to the theme of the story. Mm. Pain. Yeah. This st- and in this story, he's really he, he's pushing the boundaries between horror and sexuality. Yep. And he's treating pain and pleasure as levels of one and the same. Yep. Which is, at, especially at this time, was a very new concept. It's very taboo. Like, nowadays, you think of horror, there's a lot of sexual em- elements in horror. Whether you're sexualizing a woman or adding gratuitous sex to kind of up the amp ante on the actual horror. This one actually explored, like, a, like it could have explored more. And maybe the series coming out later this year will touch more on that. But he was pushing major boundaries with this and that's why i'm shocked it did so well yeah i agree like it's i mean at the time during the 80s like people were just trying to push boundaries and this one definitely brought things to a new level somebody pushed something so far off the cliff it went on to a new level you know that uh doug bradley wasn't always going to be pinhead i did know that I, I thought I heard that Doug Bradley was the second option for Pinhead. Well, he he was originally offered a choice of roles. Really? When he came onto this. He, he could either be one of the mattress movers or the lead Cenobite. And he nearly turned down Pinhead as he originally thought that it was important that a new that as a new film actor, the audience should see his face. Yeah. I'm so fucking glad that he he changed his mind. I am so happy he did. I love this movie. I love this movie more than I should for someone who was so terrified of it for years. (laughs) See, sometimes it's good to face your fears. Look, bitch. I got a lot of fears. Let's not face all of them at once, please. Another fun fact is that the film was was originally going to be called The Hellbound Heart. What made them change it? Well, apparently the studio decided that the title sounded too much like a romance and asked Clive Barker to change it. The Bar- hell-bound heart was too much of a romance? Well, I guess Clive Barker offered sadomasochists from beyond the grave, which was rejected for the overly sexual content. Okay. Um, He ultimately opened the floor to the production team and they offered up their own suggestions, prompting a 60-year-old woman to offer up what a woman will do for a good fuck. What a woman? Oh my god. (laughs) Imagine if that was the title to this fucking movie. It wouldn't have made $14 million, I can tell you that much. Oh man. It would have prompted... uh, some sort of movement. <laughs> Jesus, what women will do to get fuck. That's you know, props to that woman. <laughs> that is a hell of a title. Who came does it say who came up with the title Hellraiser? It does not. No? 
I think I think it would have been cooler to have the original title, but at the same time, I think Hellraiser is a little more appropriate because it's not the same story. I agree. It is changed more, so changing it to Hellraiser is great because when you think of Hellraiser, when you're like, oh, you know what Hellraiser is? Instantly Pinhead comes to mind. Yeah. Instantly. I didn't know his name was Pinhead for the longest time. I thought he was just Hellraiser. Because he doesn't have a name. He wasn't started. They didn't start calling him Pinhead until the later sequels. I have only seen the first and the second. You have you've told me do not watch the third because it's terrible. No, the third, if you're going to watch any others, go ahead and watch the third. But beyond that, they're just shit. <laughs> I've bought two more of them on DVD when we were out when we were out hunting for tapes and I remember looking at you going, hey, it's Hellraiser, but it's like a digital thing. And you're like, don't, don't buy that. I'm like, I bought it. You were Fuck. like, dear God. Now we got to watch it. The term Cenobite is a word meaning a member of a communal religious order. The Hellbound Heart, however, specifies that they are members of the Order of the Gash. The Order of the Gash? Yep. The text also refers to them as Herophants. Terrifants? Yeah. I don't remember that exactly, but... Alright. Oh, in tarot, it's the number five card in the deck. Represents tradition, religion, spirituality, and hierarchy. So he could be the main figurehead of the Cenobites? Maybe that's what... Well, that's essentially what he is. Yeah, what they were kind of getting and, on for him. Oh, uh, Clyde... Not Clyde Barker. Um, Doug Bradley actually has during an interview before described like when talking about how hell essentially works in this this world Hmm. he described hell as a prison the Cenobites are the prison guards Pinhead is the warden and the puzzle box is the key to the prison cell the demons are escaped inmates so it it all does have like a kind of hierarchy. hierarchy okay oh so how so that brings me to my first question do you think others have escaped besides Frank oh I'm sure they have granted Pinhead in this movie says that no one escapes them so it's probably rare Mm. but I'm sure Frank's not the first he's probably not the last yeah I haven't seen all of the movies. I've seen some of them. We're going to have a bad movie night and watch the rest of them. Oh, God. I, I do find it funny that you have this. I is smell an- bonus content. Oh. <laughs> oh, I smell shit. The box set you have, you have a really nice box set. It's from Arrow, right? Yes. So the version that we watched for this viewing, it's um, part of Arrow Releases limited Hellraiser the Scarlet Box which uh, essentially consists of the first, second, and third Hellraiser movies. But it, it comes in this beautiful fucking packaging with, like, a, a book inside and, like, a bunch of bonus features and tons of other shit. Yeah, there's a, there's a whole thing just on Clive Barker, isn't there? Like, a whole DVD. Uh, something like that, yeah. Clive Barker. It's like or, his legacy. Yeah, which is kind of cool. Is Clive Barker alive or dead? He's alive. He's alive. Yeah, he wouldn't be consulting on the new fucking series if he was dead. Good job, Leah. But, Good job. Yeah, if you if you're lucky enough to have this set, it's beautiful. Like, oh god, I got super lucky finding one of these. I'm going to be stealing it from him. Uh, no, <laughs> because I'm pretty sure these are out of print now. Let's see. Is the Arrow release? Yeah. We're going. They've on. done. 
Arrow's done other releases, like I think like they did a 4K version. It's called the Scarlet what? The Scarlet Box. Not the Scarecrow. Like I'm pretty sure you can still get these, like people selling them on eBay and shit like that, but first hit eBay, four hundred dollars. Four hundred dollars. I paid good. significantly less. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. And you purchased this in twenty sixteen. I don't know if I did. You can get it on Amazon. The lowest price is three hundred and fifty one dollars. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know there were pictures too. There's like pic there's like concept art of oh, all yeah. the Cenobites. There's a poster in there. There's a bunch of other shit in there. Oh, we're putting the poster up when we have a new place. At some point. I think it's a two sided poster too. Is it? I think so. Uh, it just shows the one with the Yeah, but I think it it has two sides. I think one is like the picture on the cover of the box and then the other one's a variant. Mm. Oh no. Excuse me. Sorry. Fold out reversible yeah. poster. Dude. So, here is my second question. What is that box really called? Because they call it the Lamnet. Con- the la- what do they call it? The Lament Configuration. The Lament Configuration in the movie. It is a different title in the book. Yes, I don't remember what it's called in the book. That's why I have Google. That's why I have Google. I have always called it the Lament Configuration. Some people who don't know that name call it the puzzle box. But be aware that in the Hellraiser mythos, there are more than one box. Okay, so it is called the Lamarchand configuration. L-E-M-R-L-E-M-A-R-C-H-A-N-D. I think that's a last name. That's a last name? Oh, I think that's the last name of the guy who made it. Like, who actually physically crafted the box. Philip Lamarchant was a French architect and designer. He shows up in one of the later movies. Like, they do, like, a jump back to the creation of the box. Was he a real person? No. Oh, oh. This actually made it sound like, um... He's mentioned in the Hellbound Heart as a maker of mechanical singing birds. That's why I thought, oh, we made a song box, and it just... No. Oh, there are so many boxes. There are a lot. with Because the Hellraiser mythos continued beyond the movies, beyond the original book. It actually grew even more as a comic book series. Really? Yeah. Like, in the comic book series, you actually have the the actual pinhead not the Doug Bradley version mm. and things get really intense in the comics I never followed them but I know that they there's a lot to them in Hellraiser X Judgment six puzzle boxes are prominently displayed on the fireplace six yes oh my god wait there are ten of these movies Judgment is the most recent one there are ten of these movies. But everything past three is a heaping pile of shit. We're still going to watch it. Yay! Hey, you said all film. I know. You've said it so many times. I know. All film. I know. This includes the greats and the fucking dumpster fires. This includes Neil Breen. 
Neil Breen will not come into this house. That is not cinema. That is trash. Do you so, hear me, Neil Breen? You are trash. So I have to keep that trash locked in a box somewhere, buried. I will set it on fire. I'll have to bury it in the backyard. I will mail it to Red Letter Media so they have it. They already and have them all. I don't care. I'll write a note being like, my boyfriend bought this. I told him not to. You guys can have it. Don't say anything to him. <laughs> Fuck this man. Don't. Google Neil Breen. Don't do it. Don't do it. If you want to know who Neil Breen is, Red Letter Media, look up Neil Breen with them. Have some fun. Don't do it yourselves. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So I have a question okay. that I didn't really think about until this viewing. Throughout the movie, Clive Barker doesn't shy away from like suddenly shifting us into horrific nightmare imagery like without any warning mm-hmm. so like you'll be in in a scene and then all of a sudden you're you see christy and she's walking through a through a, a room in a house and it's snowing and that dream yes that dream bugs yes. me she, so she's she's having this dream and you're like what the fuck and then she wakes up and she like in the dream at the very end of the dream she has like a flash of like her father dead yeah and she wakes up and she immediately has to call him to see if she's okay. I'm now wondering if she is supposed to be, in a way, prophetic. I mean, if the gentleman who sold the box to Frank said you were always meant to have this and she is by blood related to him, what if they all are somehow mystical, magical, connected to this other world? What if somewhere in the mythos, something happened along that li- their lines and they were always meant to go through this tragedy? That's what I gathered from it. But I also wanted to know, like, who was the bleeding person under the blanket? Was that supposed to be her mother? Because it was a crying baby and all of a sudden someone's dying. Yeah, maybe. Like, I, I know... Um, she, uh, her father was the one when the movers were like, oh yeah, she looks like her mom. Her mom's dead. It was very emphasized early on. Her mother is dead. She's no longer here. Yeah. So is that something that, you know, is that all connected? Like, was the mother always supposed to meant to be dead? Was she always meant to, you know, help the Cenobites? Is she connected to them somehow? Maybe because you haven't watched all those other movies, you don't know the answers. Maybe we'll find out the answers in these shitty movies. I don't think we will. <laughs> I think we might. But... Won't we, kid? Yes, we will. Yes, we will. This is another one of those movies that uses pops of red. Oh, yeah. Um, so, like, the flowers on the windows and the blood. Um, and it 
kind of emphasizes the otherwise dark and drained color of the movie. So, like, you notice it more because there's not much color throughout the rest. No, and if you know when Frank and Julia and everybody have their friends over and they're having a good time, the colors are warmer. It's more inviting. It's more happy. But the minute that Kirsty leaves those people, it goes back to that washed out white and the the pops of red everywhere. And it just feels it feels cold. Yeah. Everything in this movie feels cold, which obviously it's probably meant. So did you get the sense? I, I mean, I got I kind of got the sense that. Now, when I watch this movie, it, it's kind of obvious to me that Clive Barker wasn't well versed in screenwriting. He's a novelist. He wrote a he wrote a, a story. He wasn't writing a, a screenplay. Right. But he did write the screenplay for this. Yeah, I mean, you can tell this plays out like a novel would. This doesn't play out like a movie, in my opinion. But it like it always feels like the dialogue is. It doesn't feel very natural. And like, I don't know if it's because he wasn't really, he didn't really know how to write dialogue in scripts or if maybe he just didn't know how to talk to actors well. It's, I don't know, it's a weird, it never feels realistic when you're watching it now. So I feel like he had to have gotten these characters, the ideas from something. So maybe, just maybe, hear me out on this. I don't know if this is true. This is my hypothesis that Clive Barker was a nerd, did know about D&D and like older horror and stuff and just very, very like nerdish kind of bookish type of person really isn't very social. So that's why he started writing these books about the macabre and the ugly and stuff. And maybe he just never really knew how to do this much stuff. Or maybe we're seeing it all wrong. Maybe he's a very personable human being and it just translates a little different in his writing. I can tell you that he's he's a master of visuals. Yeah. Like, he uses so many powerful visuals throughout this movie to emphasize how horrific the situation is. Oh my god. And he does... he does portray the broken relationships really well like there's a lot of tension between like uh larry and julia julia and kirsty um even like this and then there's like the tension between frank and julia and like we never really have frank and larry together but no but you can tell the way larry treats others or, or like how he talks about Frank. The way he talks to Kirsty makes me realize he does not respect anyone. Because my next thing that I noticed was one of the first things we hear. Um, ladies. Hey. Stop it. Uh, the, one of the first things he says is, come to daddy. That's gross. That's yeah. skeevy. To say to your niece. Well, that's the thing. Like. Especially given that he's saying that to Kirsty, it just emphasizes how fucked up and like how little boundaries Frank has. And the first thing he says was, wow, you've grown up, you've become a beautiful woman. Like, that's the first thing you notice is her body. Yeah. Ew. Gross. Well, you got to think he's he's pushed himself to discover the furthest pleasures possible. He he basically stole his brother's wife yep 
like he's sleeping with her behind his back. Like he, there's no depths that he won't sink to. He is just a disgusting and gross human being. So it was shown in Kirsty's dream, and then it was shown again when the Cenobites show up in the hospital with Kirsty. One thing that they touched upon in her dream, and then when the Cenobites showed up, was the flower blooming. Why? I don't get that. So, first of all, when she wakes up from that dream, the nurse is sitting across from her and she's watching something of flowers on the TV. Hmm. So, you can assume that it came from waking up, she saw that okay. kind of thing. However, a flower blooming is also used a lot in as like a visual representation of it's like a like sexual awakening a blossoming yeah okay so i wonder if that there was like a little bit well, of yeah, a hint the there scene prior to the dream was her having sex with that new dude wasn't it we're uh, assuming that kirsty got it on with that dude yeah we don't know if they ever did he was sleeping over at her house. He wasn't wearing any clothes. Well, he was sleeping on the floor, though. How respectful for the twin bed. Listen, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> Look, I am assuming this is a movie not about a teenager. This is a this is a 20-something woman. This is a woman in this film. This isn't a teenager. Very happy that they pretty much, like, she was drinking. She was getting drunk. She was smoking. She was in her 20s. Very happy about that. She's not, a t- not set in high school. Which all the other fucking stupid things are. Um, but yeah, that was one thing that like drove me crazy. I'm like, what is with the flowers? Like, that seems like it is a red flower. So, I mean, there could be tons of that imagery. Even, that leans even more towards sexual awakening. You think? Well, because you got to think first penetration comes with blood. So, why did I think of Rambo or the Predator when you said first penetration and blood? First blood. <laughs> <laughs> oh well now rambo's about <laughs> rambo's about penetration <laughs> rambo's about your first period <laughs> and the predators <laughs> i gotta get off this we gotta go <laughs> please please edit this please take it out this is gross here's a little little something for you because you you're kind of wondering like where the inspirations for some of this came from yes so according to clive barker as the writing of Hellraiser's script took place during the height of A Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th, Halloween series, his intended portrayal of Pinhead as an articulate and intelligent character was initially not well received by the producers. Some suggested that Pinhead should act more like Freddy Krueger and crack jokes. Others thought that he should be silent like Jason or Michael Myers. But Clive Barker insisted that Pinhead's personality should be evocative of something like Christopher Lee as Count Dracula. Okay. So part of the chill of Dracula, he says this, part of the chill of Dracula lies in the fact that he's very clearly and articulately aware of what he's doing and you feel that he's he has a penetrating intelligence and that and Clive Barker doesn't find dumb things terribly scary so intelligence is more terrifying 
Okay. Yeah, because I always notice that Doug Bradley's performance of Pinhead is very articulate. He seems like a very intelligent being. Like, one of the biggest and most famous lines that you gave me a look at when he said it is, we have such sights to show you. And that is such, that's not like, yeah, come here, I got things to show you. No, it's very like prim, proper, and as a matter of fact, I will lead you to some of the wildest sights you've seen. It just feels, it feels like you should trust him, which is disturbing because he has pins coming out of his head. Here's another fun one. Mm-hmm. Doug Bradley's character was named Priest in the early drafts of the script. Priest. And ultimately became simply lead Cenobite in the actual shooting script. And as I mentioned before, Pinhead originated as a nickname for the character. Like, people just called him that. And it stuck. Started to get used in the sequels. And Clive Barker actually didn't like that name. I can see why. He thought it was undignified. And that in the Hellraiser comic series, which was produced by Boom, the company Boom, Mm. um... They refer to him as priests. And I guess Clive Barker to this day maintains that the character has a true Cenobite name. Okay. That he intends to at some point reveal in a like a later comic or book or something. Mm. And he's not the only one. Like similarly, the female Cenobite was I guess at some point designated as Deep Throat. Yeah, I was just looking that her nickname was um, like Open or Deep Throat, but they just called her Female Cenobite. Like, she didn't even have a title at one point. Yeah. Which is like kind of... But they're, they're all like that. So like he became Pinhead just from nicknames and then mm. you have like Butterball is the fat one and Chatter yep. is the, the, the one with the teeth. Like they they all gain these nicknames because they don't have identities. They have Dreamer. These are these are other ones. Piston Head who has a piston in his head. C D whose mouth is a CD opening. Camera Head who literally has a camera. Barbie who's covered in barbed wire. There's the wire twins, the Siamese twins, torso. Chatter or two, which I don't know if that looks like Resident Evil 2. No, there's different versions of uh, Chatter. Oh, okay. Surgeon, who literally is just a surgeon. Spike, who literally just has a spike through his fucking head. (laughs) The only one that has a proper name is, what is her name? Angelique? Angelique? Angelique. Yeah, she's one of the older, one of the newer... Cenobites, and that's the only one that really has a name. But I think there's a reason that she has a name. Yeah, I'm kind of, I'm spoiling the other movies, but (laughs) I don't don't really care. Um, I looked up Cenobites, and Kirsty Cotton's name came up as a Cenobite. Possibly in later comic stuff. That's what I'm thinking. Like, I don't know what happens to characters throughout the comics. Yeah. So that it could be, they could be having a fucking field day over there. I don't know. I do not have. Oh yeah, that's Kirsty in the comics. 
Dude. I do not have any further notes on the movie. Mm. I don't know if you do. I do not. I mean, I can essentially kind of start to wrap us up here is the movie after we watch Frank consuming all these people and there's really not much plot other no. than he consumes all these people and then Kirsty steals the configuration. Yeah, Kirsty finds out about what Julie is doing. Yep. She stumbles upon one of Frank's victims and then in then through that Frank and she steals the puzzle box, gets away, um, is found wandering the streets in like a daze. They take her to the hospital. That's where she accidentally opens up the box. The Spinabites find her. She says, Frank got out. They said, fine, prove it. And yeah. then the next thing is her going back to the house. And she essentially makes a deal with Pinhead. Yeah. That if she returns, leads them to Frank she'll get to go free which she leads them to frank and once they have taken frank in, in, in the most glorious death he could possibly have um, which actually there's a so frank has a final line famously um as he's strung up on like a hundred different hooks um he says jesus wept and starts laughing as he's a pancake face licking his lips being like pinned and stringed up and ugh. that was not the line in the script what was the line in the script um the line in the script was just fuck you i like jesus wept more. jesus wept is so odd and weird and it feels so uncomfortable especially for him to say at that moment oof yeah but that was a really cool little ad lib that they threw in there. It made it so much better. Um, but Christy gets, like, leaves him to be killed. But then the Cenobites decide that they're not letting her free. And they're going after her. But she is slowly figuring out how to close the puzzle box and sending them all back into it. Yep. Uh, her boyfriend guy shows up. Dude. And they get confronted by something that Christy saws saws. Wow, something that Christy sees earlier in the movie when she's still in the hospital and first opens the puzzle box. It's a creature that like kind of is dangling from the ceiling. It's got like a scorpion tail and it's like a, almost Human like a arms weird baby then, face. Yep. This thing, I forget its actual name. Oh, I'll look it up. But it's like the Guardian or the Sentinel is what it's called. And it's essentially like a protector of the the hell dimension. It like lives in the tunnels that we briefly see in this movie. Derelict, the puzzle guard. Oh, no. Nope. Sorry. Derelict is the final thing we see. So it's probably the Sentinel. I think it's like the Sentinel. Which is a weird name for something that looks like that. Oh, no, it's not. Oh, God. The I, Engineer. The Engineer. Okay. I apologize. The thing I'm t- talking about is the Engineer. It's this weird creature thing that lives in the fucking hell dimension. It shows back up at the end because uh, she closes the puzzle box, but then it, like, 
reopens in a different configuration. Yeah. And it basically comes out. They kind of beat it away. And she closes the box one last time. Gets rid of it. Now, before we completely wrap up, I have to talk a little bit about this thing. Because it is one of the most hilarious fucking effects in the movie now. Because as you watch it, you can see the dolly contraption that's pushing it behind it. you can see it. the puppet dude's hand <laughs> and the wire on one of the little hands. But then you can see the other guy doing this on the wall. And you can see his head peeping through on the scorpion thing. Because the Blu-ray looks beautiful. But you can see every flaw. You can see the flaws. Every flaw. It's, it's fucking gorgeous. It's so funny. Uh, I don't know. I, I can't even... Like next time you watch this, if you do have seen this, watch it again. Pay attention. Pay attention to like look behind the creature, look at the details because it's really hilarious. So, um, so they get rid of this thing and then they leave the house, and it kind of transitions ahead a little bit in time. And they, Christy and the the guy I don't know his name, they take the puzzle box out to a random clearing area where there's a bunch of shit burning. Yeah. And they throw the puzzle box in the fire. And that's where the Guardian shows up. And the Guardian shows up, which we've seen throughout the movie. He's He takes the form of this weird vagrant. It's just like he's all dirty and bearded and shitty. And he just eats crickets he eats at the crickets pet store. at one point. He, uh, he comes walking up to the fire and just literally walks into it to get the puzzle box and he stands there burning away holding the puzzle box before turning into a giant winged dragon monster skeletal wing <laughs> now, if anybody's played world of warcraft think syndragosa i don't know what that means cindy but that's basically where the movie ends we yep. pull out of the puzzle box and see that the little old Chinese guy has it again and he's selling it to someone else. And his final words are, what's your pleasure, sir? It's like, ooh. But, I have a question about that. That final scene. Lay it on me. Was that someone new, or did Frank just get shown the future? Well, that wasn't Frank sitting with him, so. No, but, could you interpret it that way? I guess you could. I don't, I wouldn't. Okay. But I guess you could. Unless maybe you looked at it as Frank did get out. He got a new skin or something. I don't... Or, Frank, yeah, Frank got out. No, because Frank had the box. What do you mean, Frank had the box? So, Frank... Frank had the box when he escaped. Yeah. I don't know what I'm talking about. Carry on. It's, uh... I don't think there's much to interpret from it. Like, I guess you could read into it differently if you wanted to. I just wanted it to be like, ooh, was it Frank? Was it somebody else? Was it the future of, you know, her boyfriend going to tell, to find the box so she could, you know, carry on with the second movie? Ooh. God, I fucking hope not. I didn't mind the second movie. I liked it. No, the second movie is really good, and eventually we'll probably get to that. Yeah. Not anytime soon. No. We don't want to do things in, you know, numerical order. There was only two movies that we did that for, and that was the very beginning. Yes. We're not doing that again. 
Do you have any other things you'd like to talk about before we get into closing questions? Nope. Let's close this. Overall thoughts on the film. I love this movie. This movie is amazing. I love it. Everybody watch it. Don't give me your bullshit excuses. It's from the 80s. It's not that gory. Don't eat with dinner. Even though we had a snack while we were watching it. Because <laughs> we're Yummy. fucked up. But no, this, I love this movie. I love it. I love it. I love it. It's not for everybody, but yeah, I can't say it enough. I agree. I, I think, wanted you to disagree so I bad. Think, <laughs> I love this movie. I love the the concept of the source material. I, I think this is one of the standout films from the 80s standard horror films at the very least i definitely think that it's not going to be a film for everybody i think they're not even just in terms of the horror and gore and stuff i think it's lacking in a lot of ways from a filmmaking perspective but it is still really good it's it's a very surreal type of movie like if you go into it with the mentality of not everything is gonna has to make sense. Not everything is gonna make sense. I think you'll enjoy it more. Mm. Any favorites? Oh, I can't say that one. That's your favorite. We have such sights to show you. His whole introduction, that whole scene in the hospital, it is amazing. The moment those bricks turn white on the outline and they're black and they show up, I'm like, I simp for for Pinhead. It's so bad. I'm so sorry. I love it. What about you, sweetie? What's your favorite line in this movie? Oh, that that's a really tough one. It is not a really tough one. You say this all the time when I cry. When I am crying, you say it to me, and it makes me laugh. Oh, you mean, please, no tears. It's a waste of good suffering. I hate it, because I'll be having a bad day or something bad happens, and he cries. You said it to me, like, right after I got home, after I found out my friend passed away. And I was crying, and I was sad, and you were hugging me, and you said it, and it made me laugh <laughs> so hard. And I'm like, this is not the time. It's always the time. But it worked. It did. It's. I think you should get that as a tattoo. Ah, look. <laughs> Where am I going to put that tattoo? Where? You can get the lament configuration. And oh then... my god, that'd be so cool! I'm running out of space, man. I I have so I have such plans for my arms and legs. <laughs> oh, what other what what are your other favorites? Because you have a lot in this one. Ah, uh, I mean, I think my favorite scene is Frank's rebirth. Like just that from is pretty sick. sheer visual spectacle. This sheer disgustingness that it is. It's oh, awesome. It's beautiful. Uh, honestly, like, there's not a lot of this movie I don't like. Like, I really just enjoy... I don't like the end credits. Because it's over. Because it's over. Just put in the next one. Does it work? 150... 150 fucking percent. This movie works. This movie's great. Don't question. I'm gonna agree. I think it still works. It... It's struggling, mm. but it still works. Folks, we're going to find a movie that we do not agree on at some point. We've had a couple already. We've had minor toughs about a movie. I want one. It's going to have to be like Revenge of the Peas, where it's just a movie where you're like, I love it. It's about peas. And I'm like, I hate it. It needs to burn in hell. Like, that's <laughs> the only time we're going to hate something. Would you recommend it? A hundred percent. I recommend this to people. I would recommend this to my brother. 
my brother I probably would laugh. Like, 100%, this is not terrifying now. Your brother gets queasy walking into our house. But we have a lot of horror stuff. He doesn't like horror. And you think he's going to sit through the gory mess that is this movie? I mean, no. sure. <laughs> Maybe I can convince him he's it's He's not going to fucking watch but this. even this one I recommend for people who are like, I'm not really into horror. This isn't really scary to me. It's not. And if somebody tells me, oh, this is terrifying... I need you to write me a five-page essay on why you think this is terrifying. Like, if you... This movie is... Oh, God. How old am I? 36? This movie's, like, 34 years old. Almost 35 years old. Like, times have changed. Like, this is not terrifying. There's no real jump scares. It's very smooth in its horror. It's not terrifying in that way it's i think it's more the shock value the shock. shock value this this is what this movie is to what uh, house of a thousand corpses it's the shock value of it yeah i i think the shock value definitely holds up yeah now like it's still fucked up material it's fucked up it's not scary it's right. fucked up and disturbing in a gross way yes i'm not I'm not helping my case with everybody watching this shit, am I? How would you make this today? Not at all. Leave it in the 80s if someone touches it. But we're getting a series about it. But it is not this. No. We are getting a Hellbound Heart. We are not getting Hellraiser. As the last few decades have, you know, shown Wait, us. Touching our fucking 80s horror movies. It's not even that. It's shown us that... Nobody will ever be able to do anything good with this franchise except for Clive Barker, apparently. And because he, he wrote it. The only reason I'm willing to give the new series a chance is because they're doing. They're not trying to tell this story. They're trying to tell Clive book, Barker's book story, yeah. Which is like, okay, that's a different thing altogether. I'll give it a shot. So. Now comes the hard question. The hard question. Is this mainstream exploitation or other? Exploitation. In what way? In its exploitation in a very grotesque, shocking, sexual pushing the limits. Now, I would honestly think for right now, this is mainstream. As as weird as it sounds, this is, if you take these elements and you put it on something that Game of Thrones, this has almost all the elements of Game of Thrones. Except for the internet, interdimensional hell beings. It has sex, it has grotesque, it has violence, it has shock. Like, it's just in a different, a different kind of setting. That's all it is. So I would say, for the time, this was exploitation. But now, this is, for now, for current, it's mainstream. Okay. I guess I can understand where you're coming from there. I... I don't think... I've ever really thought about where this would fall. Really? Like, I wouldn't consider this mainstream. I wouldn't normally consider it exploitation, but you make some good points. It's It does push the boundaries in terms of gore and uh, like sex and um, it even pushes like what you can are allowed to show. Yeah. 
which normally exploitation just shows you whatever the fuck they want and they don't care. But they're tasteful about what they show in this. It's, I, I think technically it should probably fall into other, but I think it's teetering heavily towards exploitation. Yeah. So I guess I'll let our listeners decide on that one. Ooh, what do you guys think? For people that have seen this, and for people that have listened to our description of the movie, what do you guys think? Would this be a movie that they'd show in a grindhouse cinema way back when? I think almost... I Definitely. Definitely? I, like, I think they would show it. I don't know if it would be considered exploitation. True. Would you consider this mainstream nowadays with the type of shock, violence, sex that they show even on just normal TV? Maybe. Maybe. I mean, a lot of those really violent stuff is on, like, Amazon, HBO, Paramount+. Plus. Like, you really gotta have a, have a subscription, Netflix, to watch this stuff. But it's still accessible. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that about brings this discussion to an end. Yep. We gotta close the box. Meh, 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 meh. But don't go anywhere just yet. Stay tuned for the coming attractions. TriStar Pictures announces the collaboration of three extraordinary talents. Jim Henson, creator of The Muppets and Dark Crystal. Oh! Where you go with a head like that? Hmm? George Lucas, creator of the Star Wars saga. the most innovative forces in modern entertainment, David Bowie. <laughs> Together, they will take you into a dazzling world of fantasy and adventure. There's nothing to be afraid of. A world where anything seems possible and nothing is what it seems. Everything I've done, I've done for you. I move the stars for no one. The world of Labyrinth. Hey, honey. Yes, dear. Do you know why I picked this one? It, is it the Bowie Bulge? It's the Bowie Bulge. No. <laughs> because this is my number one pick. This is my top movie. This is my number one. For all its flaws, for all its craziness, for its campy childishness, this is it. And do you know why we're doing this one next? Because the release of this episode falls on your birthday. On my birthday! So, happy birthday. We're doing Labyrinth. Woo! Jim Henson's classic film. The Labyrinth. About the Goblin King. Mm-hmm. And, and Sarah, child theft. And Toby. And, and <laughs> Hoggle. And Ludo. And Sir Didymus. And Ambrosius. And, and I love this movie. And the Bog of Eternal Stench. Uh, it smells like that in here because one of the cats pooped. Great. It's great. 
Yes, this is... If I've been thinking long and hard about this because I knew this movie was... Oh, I've known this movie's been coming up for like two or three months. And when we were planning the dates, this was like back in February. I was like, oh, one of the releases falls on my birthday, which is September 5th. And it's Labor Day. Why not pick my top movie? Why not pick my ultimate favorite movie? And this one, you have to touch on this one because it is Jim Henson gold. It is 80s gold. It is Muppetry gold. It is it is a masterpiece in certain people's eyes. Yes. It is dull and boring in others. And it has problems. It really does. I know it does. But it also has a lot of things that as a seven-year-old... When I, fir- I first watched this when I was seven, which that would make it 1992. And I remember, this is sad, my mom's going to laugh because she listens. I remember my mom used to never let me stay up past seven. And this movie was on at 9 p.m. that night. And it was on the Disney Channel. And I asked my mother if I could stay up till, it- no, I used to go to bed at six and the movie was on at seven. I asked my mother if I could stay up past seven o'clock to watch a movie. And I remember her saying, what movie? And I said, the labyrinth and she was like okay as long as you get your chores done you can watch it this is before my brother and sister were born this is prior to to everything i remember this so vividly sitting in front of our television watching this just absolutely realizing how much i loved fantasy and it's one of the only memories i can remember from prior to my brother and sister being born because my brother was born in 93 and then my sister was born in 94. So it was either, it, I was either seven or eight. It was either 92 or 93. I can't remember. But I do remember it was prior to Hocus Pocus coming out. So, yeah. Yeah, this is one that I generally enjoy revisiting. Um, I'm, I'm a huge fan of practical effects and practical puppetry and things like that. And this movie has it in abundance and in so many different forms, mm-hmm. and it all still looks awesome today. I mean, you can see some of the seams in it, but I, I still don't care. I still enjoy it. It's got great matte paintings, and for fuck's sake, it's got David Bowie dance magic. Dance. My fa- <laughs> my favorite song actually is the song "Underground." Um, when she's in the dress saying, "Oh my God, it's it's seven o'clock. I'm gonna be late." And she's running home with uh, the dog. I think the dog's name is Toby. Nope, the kid's name kid's is Toby. Name is Toby. The, the dog is Ambrosius. She, the dog has to go on the thing. She's running home and her stepmother's like, you're late. Like, I remember listening to that song and like jamming it out. And then you bought me the vinyl. I did. And I heard the vinyl of all these songs for the first time. And I cried a little because it just made me feel so good. Like, I love the this movie so much. I have the limited edition collector's edition. I never got the Blu-ray edition, but I'm still working on that. No, no, no the limited edition co- oh, Blu-ray collector. Oh, I was going to say, you have it on Blu-ray. <laughs> with, it has the, the, the Labyrinth um, Tower yeah. with it. Um, I also have a tape, your tape, and then you bought me, when we first started dating, you bought me a tape. So we have this movie on several formats. Yes. Like a stupid amount of formats. I have pop figures of this. I have pop-up books. I have a tarot card deck that a friend of mine got me for Christmas last year of this. Like, I love this movie, and this movie was part of my identity growing up because I felt like Sarah. I really did growing up. And then as I got older, I realized that 
Jennifer Connelly is an incredible actress and I've followed most of her career, but I have never seen A Beautiful Mind. That's the only one I've never seen of hers because I'm not really a, it really wasn't a movie that I was intrigued by. So, but yeah, I am psyched to watch this again. Well, if you're as psyched as Leah, tune in next week for our discussion on Labyrinth. It's going to be long. I'm going to prepare you. This might be our longest episode. I'll be ready. Yep. But that about wraps up this episode. If you want to keep up with everything that we're doing, follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Grindhouse Podcast. We're on Twitter at Grindhouse Cast. Go over to our Discord and chat with Leah. All the links for everything are going to be down in the notes. Listen to us. Give us a rating on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your morning fix. New episodes come out first thing every Monday morning. If you like what we're doing and you want to show us some support, you can find all that information down below as well. As we mentioned in previous episodes, we have some new tier levels thanks to our our new home, Acast, which uh, can get you... We'll give you a shout out in future episodes. You can get early access to new episodes and even some upcoming special bonus content that we're pretty excited about. We're super excited. We hope you're going to be excited about it. But until next week, I'm Sean. I am Leah. Thanks for listening and keep watching. Don't touch any random boxes. For your next trip, elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com/pack. For free shipping and 365 day returns.